You wanted to own your own narrative. Mm. Do you feel like you have done that? Owning my own narrative is... Yo, check it out. So just to kick it off, I mean, you're, you're talking about studios like 15 minutes away. You guys have been chilling, taking things easy over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been really chill. Um, I'm fortunate enough to say that the pandemic has probably given me more time to be with family and, and for work than I would have had normally. I've lived in New York for 10 years now. Yeah. And last year was the first time I had been here within June, July or August. This year is the first full summer I've been in New York. In 10 years? Yeah, yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild. What's it like now being home for that long and over summer? Honestly, it's great, man. Like, I'm a creature of habit. I have, I'm a, I'm a very routine person, so. Yeah. I've really enjoyed being able to stick to a routine. You know, touring touring messes up my my love for routines. <laughs> so being home and being able to wake up at this time, eat at this time, hang out with my daughter at this time, work at this time, hang out with my wife at this time, sleep at this time has been fantastic. That's good, man. I like that. Like, were you able to were you able to develop any routines while you were on tour that kept you sane, or was it like? I mean, you nailed it, like. I make coffee everywhere I go. That literally is the thing I do to keep my sanity when I'm touring. Because I start my day off by making fresh coffee when I'm home. So in the act of like grinding some beans, pouring some water and sitting down with a cup of coffee and reading the news, knowing that no matter where I'm at in the world, I do the same thing. Eventually, like it, I tend to not even re realize that I'm gone until I step out of the hotel door. And I'm like, oh, I'm not home anymore. And that kind of helps me stay grounded everywhere where I go. Yo, I like that, man. It's like it's like mental cues, right? Like you find ways to, yeah, you know, to keep you to keep you switched on. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of like repeat spots too because I I tend to travel to places that I've been frequently. So I'll use Google Maps and I'm starring coffee shops, restaurants, museums, stores all over the world. And whenever I go back to that place. I start to feel like a local because I go get my bread over here. I go grab my lunch over here. I go have a cup of coffee over here. I eat dinner here. I go take a walk over there. And, you know, it's like the exact same things that I would do if I was back home. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. I, I don't think I've spoken to many people who've developed routines in that way when they're on tour. I think that's smart because, like, it, it keeps you sane and grounded in a way, you know, and it kind of keeps everything level. That's pretty dope. I like that. In preparation for this, I was just looking back at the last time we we kicked it when you were in Dubai, and that was in 2016. Like, you know, part of just doing my homework, going through my show notes and everything. I'm like, damn, that was a while back. And it's just interesting to see how far things have come since. And 
one of the things I wanted to sort of bring up and see if, if that changed in any way, and I'm just like jumping into the deep end with this one, was that we we were talking about how obviously by nature of who you are, you feel politicized. But obviously you're you're non-political as an artist. In light of recent events and what's been happening, did you feel a sense of responsibility to speak up on anything or did you feel a sort of impact to reintroduce that in music or anything like that? Or, you know, you're still sort of steady as she goes, as they say. I mean, I don't consider myself a political rapper, but politics is very much a part of my lyricism because I just speak about social events. I just speak about life and politics and how it affects us is a part of life. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's an album that I've come out with where whatever's happening in the world hasn't made it into my music, you know? Do I actively say I'm going to write about this because I'm a political activist rapper? No, mm. no, no. Um, I would never uh, put myself in that type of a box. I don't know if I've even mentioned this in our past conversations, but it's something that I feel yeah. even today I don't think it's anyone's responsibility to politicize their music. I think that if you answer the calling, so be it. But if you don't, there's someone who will. And we don't need tons of people fighting who have no business fighting. You know, like Mm -hmm. classic, where's Ja Rule situation? You know, (laughs) uh, Dave Chappelle stand up. Right. There's a lot of rappers that we don't need to hear anything from them. Right. Nor should they be expected to voice out anything. They've told us time and time again through their music what it is that they're concerned with. So why should we be surprised when they have nothing to say about current social and political events? With that being said, I mean, come on, man. I'm from D.C. I'm Sudanese American. I'm black. I'm Muslim. I can't escape it. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. I can't escape it. You know, I could talk about love in the time of this, you know, or emotions because of this. So I'm always going to have a human element in how human emotions and the human psyche is affected by our shared experiences. Right. Because I I think our experiences are not, sometimes we think it just happens to us, but it really happens to all of us in different ways. That's how we empathize with each other. Yeah, everywhere I go, every crowd thinks that they're unique. And it's fascinating, you know, when you get the exact same questions from city to city, state to state, country to country, continent to continent. Uh, you see the exact same characters in, in the crowds. You know, the over-lively person, the timid person, the person who's a diehard fan, the, the new fan, the couple, the single people, and their interactions, the people in the, who, act, who, who gravitate towards the front of the crowd or the mid or the flanks or the back, they're all different human beings, but they're very much the same person, you know, everywhere we go. And, you know, we do our best as musicians not to destroy that, let that magic be what it is. Mm. We're performing the same songs every single day. They're seeing it for the first time when we come to town. Don't ruin it, you know? And our shared experiences are very much like that. It's not just the music that we're listening to. It's the information we're consuming. It's the cultures that we're a part of. Right. You can't have a culture unless there's some level of conformity, you know? So we we have a lot in common. We do. I, I, I totally agree to that, man. 
So earlier you were talking about, obviously, you always have your messages, and I think rappers and musicians generally would, in their music, one way or the other. When sometimes the it's not the intent of, you know, wanting to be political or anything like that, but rather it's what your heart kind of ends up getting you to put on paper, I would assume. What was that journey like with Odd Cure as you were working on this piece? Because I think it was one of those pieces that I found to be very fascinating. And I think without putting too much questions to it, rather just I want to give you the stage sort of to elaborate and speak on it. It was... um it was a very evolving process where I had already started working on, I've been working on music since 2017. My last release came out was the iceberg and I've continued to work on music constantly. And I knew that I wanted to come out. I knew that I wanted to finish several projects before releasing one project or at least get them started so that I could release music in succession. And I got asked in late February to go to Thailand to fill in for some uh, headliners who were backing out of gigs because of coronavirus. My booking agent, August, uh, he's based in Shanghai. He does all of Asia for me in the Middle East. And uh, he's like, listen, there's a serious bag out there. If you just want to go out and do a couple quick shows, it'll be five shows for you. You'll make like, bang. I'm like, looking at the math, I'm like, yeah, this is like, over a year's salary for these five shows because they were all headliners who backed out and I would be taking their fees on top of that being compensated for the fact that I was going out during the pandemic, right? So I'm like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Wow. I got my vitamins. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) That's brave. That's a brave call. (laughs) So one by one, as we were leading up to departure, the shows just started just dropping, started canceling all the shows. They were just canceling the festivals. Manila canceled. Jakarta canceled. Singapore canceled. Around when was this? This was March? March or Feb? Yeah. They were all just pop, 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 dropping. Okay. The only one that didn't cancel was Bangkok on the 6th of March. So I ended up being in Bangkok for like a little over a week or something. All expenses paid, but I only had to do 40 minutes on stage, you know? (laughs) And uh, me and my DJ went. We didn't bring the band. And we're just kind of in Southeast Asia during a pandemic. And what we were observing observing, kind of made us drop our guard. Everyone had on face masks, hand sanitizer everywhere, doors propped open 24-7 so that people wouldn't have to touch them, social distancing. Just It was just a part of the society. This part of the world is used to epidemics and pandemics. So we were like, oh, this is not a big deal. This is fine. I'm glad I came, made this bag. This is great. And uh, start hearing the news. Oh my gosh, you better hurry up and come home. We're going to lock down America. I'm like, it doesn't really apply to me. I'm an American citizen. Yeah. I can go home. So I get to the airport in Thailand and that's when I started freaking out. I was around mad tourists from all over the world and everybody looked sick and everybody was just like, like and I was like, okay. It's y'all who weren't observing the rules in this lovely, in this lovely country. <laughs> oh, y'all about to bring home some shit. Okay, all right. Let me put this mask on. You know what I mean? So yep. that's when it hit me. So I'm rocking the mask the whole way back. Mind you, on the way to, to fly into Bangkok, I was supposed to go to Seoul. 
that flight was rerouted by my booking agent and they, they flew me through Qatar and I had to go around and I had to avoid Seoul. So I had to fly back the same way. And what is that like 16, 17 hours? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And I'm uh, wearing a mask and uh, I mean, it's just the amount of coughing on the plane. Honestly, I don't know if it was more because I was paying attention and I was worried or if it was just more, but like that whole man, it's giving me anxiety hearing about it. The whole plane was just <laughs> coughing, right? And and these tourists were they were Italians, they were French, they were German, they were Scandinavian, they were Canadian, they were American, and they were going to the Middle East in that airport, and then they were dispersing all over the world, you know. And I'm watching this happen, and it had a it had a monumental effect on me watching the spread of a virus. You know, right. Uh, and from not too far from its epicenter. I mean, by no means is Bangkok next to Wuhan, but it's closer than New York City is, you know. Yeah. And I'm watching this pandemic start and spread all around the world from the passenger seat of a plane. And when I arrive in New York, I just showed my passport and walked out. Nothing, nothing, no screening, no questioning, nothing. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is about to be some serious shit. Right. Because America is is not, this is going to be bad. They're ready. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, I should not have been able to just walk out of JFK. Yeah. And uh, my wife told me I, I couldn't come home. So I quarantined in my studio. And I'm sitting here, uh, I'm sitting here with my engineer, who's from Hong Kong. Say hi, Del. How are you? What's up, dude? <laughs> and uh, Delph had just come back from Hong Kong weeks before me and he had quarantined and uh, when I came home I was like listen man if you don't want to be around me you can go stay at your girl's house or something but I have to go someplace Yeah, I can't go home he's like nah we're good <laughs> you come here it's fine <laughs> ride, or, ride or die man there we go <laughs> yeah, he's ride or die right <laughs> So uh, it was in that moment, it was like, yo, let's scrap what we were working on. Let's, let's do a record like right here in this moment. This is something that I don't think in our lifetimes, there's been something that's in the world that everyone was affected by at the exact same time. Right. You know, we've had wars over here and economic crisis over here and natural disasters over here. But at the exact same time, it's like, let's, Let's document this. This was an equalizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as we were working on the record, I was uh, producing tracks, writing, Delph was recording and mixing. And we, I was just on calls constantly, people talking to friends, family, people I hadn't spoken to in years. And Delph and I were, you know, talking about, wow, this is really interesting how we are having a lot more contact with people than normal. I said, yes, the pandemic. I said, you know what? I think that's something that should be included in this record. I actually have never done skits ever before in any music I've released. But this record, uh, I felt as though the conversations being grounded in reality and the music being so metaphorical, it was necessary to like encapsulate what was happening in this time. It balanced it out. Yeah. And were, were these calls, were they organic and you just happened to record them or... It was, it was planned, you know, you let the fam and friends know that you were about to call them and record these sessions. No, <laughs> nobody knew that they were being recorded. I just, uh, we just hit record 
and we were just calling people. Yeah. And uh, I told them afterwards <laughs> that they had been recorded, obviously, to make sure that I could get their permission. Okay. Uh, the only person I didn't tell was my dad and my grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even say anything to them. Like they, they probably, my grandmother knows my, my nephew played a record for her back in DC, but my, my dad doesn't know yet. So it's not, your dad's in Sudan? Yeah. Yeah. He's in Sudan. And was there a reason for that order of the calls within the album? Um, yeah, it was, it was about continuity. You know, I felt like the tone of the conversation had to match the production because the production plays underneath each skit. Mm -hmm. So if the first thing was I was looking for tone to match the production, but subconsciously I was doing an interview with German radio yesterday and they brought to my attention something that I don't think I did on purpose, but it kind of starts off as my nucleus and then it just goes out to my friends. And then eventually I start to, I, I call my manager and discuss business. Mm -hmm. It very much was put in that order of the people who are, who are important for my creation as a human being. And then the people who are important as my creation as an artist, you know, and it kind of progressed in that order. That's pretty cool. I like how in a way it did come through to that, whether intentional or intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't do it on purpose, but I'm going to take credit for it though. <laughs> Yeah. Hey man, it's your creative body. Might yeah, as well. Yeah, I knew what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So now that that you've you've reached this point, what's next for you? I mean, now you've wrapped up Odd Cure. It's out there. You're doing. I'm I'm guessing you're doing the interview rounds now and kind of moving into that space a little bit. What's What's next for you? What's your plan over the next coming years? Well. The plan is knowing COVID has has had a <laughs> has now kind of changed everything for everybody. Like if you had in January, if you had plans for March, man, I would I, I wouldn't have even been here right now. I wouldn't even be, I wouldn't have been home. My first EP would have came out, the one that I scrapped to do our cure, right? That would have came out in March, and I would have been on tour in spring and summer, and then my solo album would have came out in September. Now, Our Cure came out last week. Another EP is coming out at the end of August, and the solo album is coming out at the end of September. And I'll be touring, inshallah, all of next year, like all of next year, because they're already starting to book it right now. A question. There's there's something that stood out to me recently when I was when I was reading some of the stuff that you've done over the past couple of years. And I think it was in regards to Iceberg and the work you did. You spoke about you wanted to own your own narrative and mm. your work. I mean, for one, could you elaborate on that? And two, do you feel like you have done that even with your recent body of work as well? Owning my own narrative is something I've attempted to do for quite some time, but I've never been able to have success. I've never managed success. Even currently, I'm very unsuccessful in owning my narrative. And it's because my narrative is very, very unorthodox, rare, just uncommon in the general consciousness of people who consume music. Sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, I think that's interesting. Can we take it back to maybe what are you, what are you defining as your own narrative first? Sure. So what I mean by my own narrative is I, it's often a sign that because of the nature of the music I make, 
So when I speak about narrative, I'm talking about my creative narrative, not my personal narrative. But obviously they're intertwined. We'll, we'll get to that. As a musician, the narrative given to me is underground hip hop rapper. Right. And there's a lot of stereotypes that come with that narrative. Struggling artists against commercialism, against business, uh, fighting for uh, a, preser- a preservationist. Uh, those are things that are normally associated with the, the genre of music that I do and the subgenre that I do in my contemporaries. And I've attempted to show fans and artists alike that there is such thing as being successful without being mainstream. And there is a such thing as being happy and being satisfied without being insanely rich. And I, I, I continue to like try to deliver that message through the music and, and I, I also carry that message in my own life. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Everyone to everyone, mm. I'm broke and I'm underrated. And I, I, I just want to keep it real, <laughs> for, for lack of a better uh, cliche. And yeah. I've tried to like help people. And I was like, hey, actually, if you spend less on making music, then you don't have to sell as much, but then you make more. So when you look at the numbers and you see that I sold this and this person sold that, they might have sold more than me, but they spent more to make that record. And they have less ownership. It's on the margins. Right. Mm -hmm. Honestly, if I had to generalize fans, when you speak like that, it's just like, yeah, yeah, cool story, bro. That's it. Mm. It's like nobody wants to hear that. Like nobody wants to hear. And it's because that that narrative isn't common enough that people are uh, open to hearing it. You know, we're, we're more accustomed to saying being an artist is a dangerous profession. And only a very small percentage of people, quote unquote, make it. And that's what was told to me by my parents and people around me. And as I progress in my career, I'm like, wait a minute, what is making it? If making it is winning Grammys and making millions and being uh, so popular that you can't live a private life. okay, that's rare. Yeah, that's very difficult to do. But if making it means that you can support yourself have savings, have investments, own property, and still be a private citizen, is that not making it? And I had to stop and say, yeah, that's making it. And then I went on this crusade to say to everyone, hey, everybody, I realize that there's another definition for making it. And everyone's like, yeah, no, including all the journalists who write about me. And that's one of the things that was most frustrating <laughs> is making music that was dedicated, like the iceberg, making music yeah. that was dedicated to uh, the institution of credit in the Black community in America, the relationship between parents and their children and what their children want to do for a living, having flash judgments and judging people based on their skin color uh, versus the person that they are. These were all the subject matters of the iceberg because it was a metaphor for digging beneath the surface. One after one, whether it be NPR or pitchfork or noisy, every single reviewer write-up was basically underground rapper Amir Muhammad, aka Odyssey, comes out with his newest release, tackling his classic subjects of wanting to rise above his status as an underground rapper and make something of himself. 
And I'm like, where'd you read that? That was not in the music. <laughs> where'd you read that? And so, so honestly, bro, I've given up. With the odd cure, well, with all the skits, people have heard the skits with me talking to my manager and my manager telling them, me that there's no touring left. That I won't be touring this year. And mind you, now that I'm home, that just means that I have more time to do music licensing, which is a good bulk of my income, making music for TV ads, commercials, documentaries, film. On top of that, I'm working on a lot of music and I have a very, very large catalog of music that is constantly streaming. You know, we're talking 10 years plus of two albums a year with no less than 12 tracks on each record. These songs are constantly streaming. So I have passive income, uh, residuals, and active income. And now I have more time to focus on other streams of revenue like music licensing. The amount of people who've heard that record and are overpaying me on Bandcamp or sending me messages saying, what's the best way to get you money? I heard that uh, you can't tour so I just want to make sure that you can live and you, you and your family can survive. I had I, some message I sent my homies um, mm. where this guy was trying to uh, donate money to me. And I'm like, wow, like, wow, wow, this is crazy. I don't want to go into it, but I, I'm, I, I'm very much upper oh, middle class. Shout out to him. I'm not upper class, but I'm definitely in the six figures range year yeah. after year. And there are people who want to donate money to me. Yeah, you know, thank you. I'm, that's, I'm humbled by that. But it, it just goes to show that no matter what I show visually or what I record in music, it's not coming. It's not translating. Not yet. To that. Yeah. You know, and I, 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 I just I can't yeah. stop it. But I think that's really interesting because like in a way it seems like you've carved your own path that doesn't follow what has been created before you. Right. Like you're, you're, you're definitely not underground nor an underrated artist. I think we can see that from how much you've been touring for quite a while right now. Right. So you're constantly, you're constantly <laughs> getting booked. Right. But like, <laughs> That's what I said. But apparently if you're not selling out arenas, you're underrated. I mean, the amount of artists bigger than me that I've seen fans call underrated. The definition of underrated, I think, is if you're not Drake or Rihanna, you're underrated. Yeah. To fans, period. Like, if everyone doesn't know your name, you're underrated. So I've learned to not take that so personal and stop trying to uh, show an alternative because it's beating a dead horse. You know, uh, I, I've seen people, like, what do I got, 100,000 followers on Instagram? I've seen people with a half a million and their fans are screaming that they're underrated. You know? There you go. You, like, you can't win. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, and I think, but I think also as, as like as, as KPI, like key performance index, right? Like, what really are the measurements of success? And I think that's yeah. And I think yeah. that's the narrative that you can't change. Sort of like you kind of like you know Moses about it, where you kind of created your own path right the middle. You're not on either side of the spectrum that, that has been created before you. And kind of like you know what, alhamdulillah, I'm 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 comfortable. I'm making money, I'm touring, I'm working, I'm taking care of my family, you got savings, you got investments. But I think that there is, you know, having that understanding and that state of mind is what people are thinking away are still not necessarily connecting to. And I think that that's part of that, the struggle in communicating that narrative. But I understand where you're coming from, uh, from as a business person. 
from that point of view of, you know, my profit margins are great. I have, I own my rights. There's intellectual property, copyright, trademark, all from legally and as a business, all of these things I've protected and I've owned, right? So I completely, I completely understand that. But yeah. I realize that might not necessarily be obviously common knowledge for a lot of people. Yeah. Where did you develop that business knowledge? Aboy, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to him, man. <laughs> Al Hajj. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the um, the man that came from the Hitler to the world, man. Like he uh, he showed me everything. This guy, he was a, <laughs> when he first came to America. He had he had uh, he was he was educated in boarding school in England. Then him and his brothers went to Dubai in the 60s and the 70s to work in banks. Uh, his brother stayed. He hated it. Got on a plane, went to New York. His homie, uh, Muhammad Al-Adin, in D.C. was like, come down here. It's wide open. You don't have to compete with all the other foreigners in New York. You know? And uh, my dad goes to D.C. Uh, he gets to D.C. in 76. And uh, by 81, I'm born. And by, by 81, he was driving. He was delivering bread for the Middle East Bacon Company, owned by this Jordanian guy. I think, yeah, I think he was from um, Jordan. Yeah, he was from Jordan. And uh, my dad was the bread deliverer. And before that, he worked in a Lebanese restaurant in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And they gave him a room to rent above the restaurant. And when I was born, that room is where my mother and my dad and I lived. And my crib was the top drawer of a dresser, you know? And... Uh, my dad learned how to make bread from hanging out at the factory that he would pick the bread up to make deliveries. Right. He then learns how to make bread. He gets really, really good at it, and he gets a job at Sutton Place Gourmet, which is a really uh, well-known bakery in Maryland. That's when my dad started to do well for himself. And uh, my parents divorced. My dad took custody of me. It's me and my dad living in Silver Spring, Maryland. He worked at the bakery. And uh, from there... He remarried to my stepmother, uh, Magda. She came, moved to America, and then my siblings were born. And my dad transitioned from being a baker to truck driver. He started delivering um, for Staples, which is like an office supply company. I think you guys have Staples out there. Yeah. And eventually he got one truck and then another and another. He ended up with 12. And he delivered all of the office supplies for Staples in the D.C. metropolitan area. So I watched a guy turn himself from a waiter into a truck driver, into a baker, into a truck driver, into a owner of a truck delivery service. And then it was at that point that he started to invest in Sudan and he built an apartment complex there, a small dukan. And then he started uh, revitalizing the family business of uh, being horse merchants, buying, selling and trading uh, in horses and racing ho race horses. And uh, in 2007, I saw him retire and move back to Sudan. Uh, his birthday was yesterday, actually. Yo, happy birthday, Pops. Yeah. And I, I just watched this guy work his ass off, never think that he was too good to get any money that was on the table, get the money, stay quiet about it, watch his friends around him spin it absorbently. We're talking the Reagan era of D.C. during the height of the crack epidemic. We're talking... The Clinton years where the economy exploded and that's where he made most of his money. And then we're talking about the Bush years where the economy crashed. 
And it was at that moment when the economy was crashing that my dad lost his contract and all of his friends around him lost their homes mm -hmm. and they went into foreclosure right. because they were spending way more than they had because the money was so good during the Clinton years and they had no contingency plan. And I just watched all of this. Mm -hmm. And not only did I watch it, this is what we were talking about at the dinner table every night. There's not a single job that my dad had that he didn't make me go to work with him on a consistent basis. When he was at the bakery, a couple times, I'd have to just go with him three, four in the morning and make bread. We, I'd be, He gave me a route. That was my high school job, was delivering for Staples, driving trucks all in and out of DC. You know, so the value of money how, like how hard to work for it. And the most important thing, he said, never have one big thing, have five small things. He said, you're going to see a lot of people chasing one big thing. Mm. Let them chase that one big thing. Have, smile, five, have five small things, you know? And if one of them falls apart, you know, you'll have four others. Right. So instead of trying to get myself where I'm making 30 grand a show and I'm only doing five shows, I got myself to a place where I'm making 10 grand a show and I'm doing 30 shows. Yeah, I got to work harder, you know, mm -hmm. but there's value in that. I'm connecting with more people. I'm seeing more places. I'm leaving an imprint all across the world. Right. And I'm still making good income, you know. There's an intangible benefit and cultural momentum that you're driving with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's all from, from Pops, man. Like the truest hustler. You know, especially in the Sudanese community where oftentimes having jobs that require physical labor are frowned upon mm -hmm. and looked at as lesser than, you know, uh, my dad didn't play that. You know, he's like white shirt or blue shirt. If I'm making more money, I'm making more money. I don't care if I don't have my name on a door or if I if I don't when we're having shy or I'm visiting your house, if I can't tell you about this or that it doesn't matter. You know, and he very much is that guy. The Sudanese community lives in Virginia, in the DMV, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Yep. My dad moved us to Prince George. Yep. Umdurman, huh? Virginia. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Umdurman, Virginia. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we, I grew up in PG County, Maryland, which there was only, it was my family, the Noor family, Tahir's family, mm -hmm. Al-Kabli's family, from Kabli's brother, the singer. There were four families in, in the part of Maryland where I was from, four. That's it, because my dad was like, I'll go see y'all mm -hmm. and hang out, but I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm going to go live over here. And uh, that's I, I got that same hustle from him. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't live where I work. You know, I keep things separate, you know, and I keep it moving. So you've learned that, that hustle. You learned the business acumen. You learned value of a dollar. And I think... You know, you, you learned the, the basics of, you know, un understand. Like, it's so interesting. Like, it's not without going to accounting courses in university, you understand five small things is better than one big thing. You don't put all your eggs in one basket type <laughs> lessons, right? Which is, yeah, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it should be common sense. You'd think it is, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. Is, yeah. is he able to retire? Because sometimes people like that always want to always have some side hustle or something going on. He he uh, he just applied for his Social Security this year. He was born in 54. What does that make him now? He's 66 yesterday. Yeah, I think. Just about. Yeah. Yeah. So at 65 in the United States, you're eligible for your Social Security. 
So he applied for a social security earlier this year. Me and my sister decided we did all the paperwork. We set up a, a bank account, et cetera. So he's got that income. Then he's got a 12 unit apartment building and he lives on the entire first floor. He made that whole first floor of his apartment and he rents out the rest. Then he's got a small dukan across the street and then he's got the horses in Khartoum around near the stable in the equestrian center. Mm-hmm. And like, mashallah, the guy just can't stop moving. Mashallah. You know, like he needs to have something to do. Like he just has to. You know, and I and I, I I hate to admit it, but I very much have been infected by that same problem. Yeah. You know, my wife and I have big issues because I, I can't take vacations. Like she can sit out in the sun for days. So when we go on holiday, I let her plan the whole thing <laughs> and she books the tickets and I fly myself in and I fly out and I usually don't stay the whole time. And when I do come, I bring my my equipment with me. You know, because it's going to get to some point in the evening where the past couple of years we've been we've been vacationing with her family. Uh, one of my favorite places to to kind of like work and chill is Croatia. So the past couple of summers, we rent a house in Croatia on the Adriatic uh, Sea and her whole family comes over and my wife and my, myself and our daughter, we, we go and it'll get to a point at night where they've sat out on the beach, they've hung out, they went sightseeing, and then they come back, and then they just kind of want to play cards. Yeah. And the kids run around, and it's like, yeah, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so I take I take my shisha, I go sit out on the balcony with my laptop, I start making beats, you know, and she gets it. Like, I have to do some yeah. work, you yeah. know? No, I, I get the addiction, yeah. man. Like, it, it's, it is an addiction of its own kind where... Yeah. And I don't know, and I think probably I get it from my dad as well, but the sense like if, if you're not being productive, you're not doing something, something's off and you just, you just, you have to like the sense that's like, you got it. Yo, yeah. I feel guilty. I literally have a sense right? of guilt. It eats you up. <laughs> like, it's serious. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Like it's for real, like full on guilt. Like, oh my God. I could be making a beat. I could be writing a song. I could be editing a lyric book. I could be shooting press shots. I could be brainstorming content. There's so many things that I could be doing and I'm just sitting on a beach. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. I get, it's crazy. Cause like, yeah, but I think that that's also something that I find really interesting about you that I appreciate is that it's not about being in the mood which is something I hear a lot of artists say, and not just in music, but just art in general. The romantics. Right. <laughs> and and, and there, there's, there's, I feel like there's a space and time for that, but when you're trying to make this your bread and butter, like I'm about to, if you had a day job or if you had a side hustle, like you're about to quit everything and no, I want to do this, right? But then... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the actions don't necessarily follow. Actually, it's not the actions. It's just that that sense of guilt that you're talking about. This thing inside you where it's like, bro, what are you doing? <laughs> like, really? We're sitting on a beach right now. Like that that <laughs> narrative starts to play at the back of your head, right? Like, yeah, it's it's really not. I don't feel like not a lot of people have that. And I, I love that. That's something that you definitely learned from your dad. But like in that experience and in this journey of yours, how have you built 
your business and music? Because I think a lot of musicians just think, as I said, it based on the, when I feel like it or when I'm in the mood. And then that mood comes once every God knows how long, right? And I understand that with creative process because you might have a writer's block at some point and you can't really write or you can't really produce. But then, as you said, there's shoots, there's legal, there's finance, there's all these other aspects that you've, you've taken on board that you do as well. And applying that in the business of music itself, right? How did you get started in that? And also, how do you balance all that as well? Because you're wearing 20 different hats. These are, if, if I want to put you in a, in a business structure, then you've taken multiple roles, right, across to yourself. But also, you've taken the time to educate yourself and learn about that process to protect your rights. We can't escape the old man, you know? This goes, this goes back to Pops. Uh, I got my license in high school. My dad bought me a 1984 Toyota Celica. I mean, his car was trash. It was so beat up. <laughs> you know, it looked like something out of Mad Max. And um, my dad says, I got you this car because anything that, going, that is going to happen to a car is going to happen to this car. Yep. Your timing belt, your motor mounts, your coolant, your muffler, your exhaust, anything that's going to happen to a car is going to happen to this one. And when it does... You're going to have to deal with it and you're going to hear those sounds and then you're going to have to get it fixed and you're going to know what's wrong with this car. And when you're done with this car, whenever you have a car in the future, before a mechanic tries to tell you what you need to fix your car, you're going to know. Even if you don't do it yourself, you're going to know since you're never taken advantage of. And man, everything happened to that car. Alternator, timing belt, fan. <laughs> and Yo, I, Sorry to interrupt, but like... Your dad, your dad didn't go to college, right? No, 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 he didn't go. He yeah. went to restaurant yeah. college it's, for like one year in upstate New York when he came to New York and then he went to D.C. He dropped out. Yeah, but you know what? Like your dad comes from the school of hard knocks. Like that's street knowledge, right? Yeah. That's not something you're going to get yeah. out of college. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. He's very much a, a street guy. Very much a street yeah. guy. Yeah. You know, my dad's way more violent than me. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, he, he gets me this car. Everything that happens, happens to this car. And then I get my second car and then some things happen. And I'm like, oh, you heard that? That clicking noise? I'm going to have to change my starter soon because I knew, right? So when I started getting into music, eventually, you know, I had to work with a graphic designer. I had to work with a photographer. I had to work with an engineer, in order to maximize that relationship, I had to understand a tad bit of at least what they were doing. So initially I just did everything myself. And then when I started to work with people, I could translate what it is that I was looking for and more importantly, never be taken advantage of. Because these freelancers out here will get you, you know? And now I don't wear as many hats. I'm thankful to say, like I needed to delegate a bit more because I'm a father now. I'm a husband now. I, I have to have more. I have to cut out time to be a parent and to be a husband. And in order to do so, uh, I had to delegate and bring other people into the fold. So now, uh, I mean, where do we start? 2006, I started touring, booking shows through MySpace, using Gmail to negotiate. Took me on average 20 emails to confirm one show. On any given tour, I was doing 18, 20 cities, you know? 
and I was tour booking for myself for, mm. from 06 to like 2010. Album covers, press shots, mixing, writing, recording, all of that was done in the midst of doing everything else. And 2010, I got a booking agent. 2016, my booking agent became my manager and we signed to an actual booking agency. Uh, 2016, I also got a publishing deal that uh, shopped my music for me for licensing opportunities. 2019, I had hired an engineer who you just saw just there. And now I have an art director, an engineer, a manager, a booking agent, a publicist, a publisher, a documentarian, graphic designer. Yeah, I think that's everybody. <laughs> but I did all of it at one point in time. So I worked on that car. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, we can, we, can, um, we can maximize things. We can get things done at a cheaper uh, cost. We're very, very time efficient. You know, we can knock EPs out in a matter of months, you know, including nice. music videos and press and all of those things that were the art cures, like bam, 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 you know? Nice. And like, uh, and are they all full-time with you or? No, no, I couldn't afford to have anyone full-time with me. No, no. Um, okay. Delph, my engineer is pretty much full-time, but he's definitely still working on other things. He's the only person that's on salary with me. Everyone else, actually, no, him and my art director, Keith Charles. Keith Charles is on retainer and Delph is on salary. Everyone else, they get paid uh, uh, per project basis. Yeah, yeah. And from this entire journey, what are some of the biggest learnings that it has taught you that you want to disseminate that knowledge with people? One of the things is uh, the phrase is easier said than done. As years go by, I don't believe that that's true. I believe it's easier done than said. Mm. And that's something that I would like to convey to people that to actually articulate and define what it is that you want to do and how you want to do it is far more difficult than the execution, you know? And I've been spending a lot more time contemplating and conceiving my ideas and my thoughts and really dedicating time to mapping out what's going on in my head. And the longer I take to do that, the easier it is to actually physically do things. You know, the more I think about an album, the faster I make the record. You know, the, the more I think about content, the better the content is. So the, the more thought, the more time I put into actually speaking things out into existence, the easier it is to actually make them. So yeah, uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate of it's easier done than said. I like that. I don't think I've ever heard that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something that... That's pretty good. Yeah, it's just been sitting with me for a while. It's like, wow. You know, we've all been taught that, I guess, in that meaning of, I'm going to do this tomorrow. Yeah, you can say that, but are you actually going to do it? But how many of us are actually thinking exactly what it is we're going to do tomorrow and how we're going to do it? Because if you do that, you'll actually do it tomorrow, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. And what else have you? What else have you been? You've been contemplating. Not much, really, bro. I'm on autopilot most of the time. 
<laughs> I'm on autopilot. That's convenient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on autopilot. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm taking it day by day. You know, I wake up because my daughter calls me from her room and says, wake up, wake up. And then I wake up and we get her out of her, her bed and we walk into the kitchen and she tells me what she wants to eat for breakfast. And I'm like a zombie <laughs> and I make her what she wants to eat. And I make coffee and I make food and then we hang out. Um, eventually mama wakes up, you know, and, uh, we hang out some more and then I go to work. That's nice. And then at work, that's when I get some variety. Oh, I might do a podcast today. Oh, I might do an interview. Wow. That's different. And then let's make some more music. And then, uh, my art director hits me up and was like, all right, what's on the list? Here's the social media promo videos we want to do. Here's the music video concepts. Here's the treatment. I've sold some directors for this. What do you think about shooting it on this day? All right, all right, cool. Then my manager calls me and says, great news. This person's going to endorse you. Uh, they need X amount of tweets from you on the product, and they'll be sending you this. And then when you start touring, they're going to pay for this amount of tour support. I'm like, all right, cool, great. And then the list goes go. on. And the yeah. publicist calls and says, here's the, pro the approved interviews. They're going to be at this time. Uh, schedule them in your calendar. I'm like, cool. Publisher calls me and is like, we licensed this track to a uh, exercise company in New Zealand. True story. <laughs> it's going to air on New Zealand TV and da, da 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 And it'll only be in that territory, but the money's good. You cool with that? Yeah, let's go for it. Done. And then we make some music and I look over at Delph. He's like, yo, you hungry? He's like, all right, let's order something fat and disgusting. There we go. Great. <laughs> and then we, do, <laughs> then we do that. And I'm like, all right, it's time for a shisha. And then I smoke some shisha and then I go home. And then I, I play with my kid and we eat dinner. She goes to sleep and me and my wife watch something on Netflix. I love it. And then I go to sleep and I do it again. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's it, man. That's it. But it's so interesting. Like I totally get that. It's the same thing on my end. Like I think except Fridays when it's like family get togethers and they want to hang. And then except Fridays, right. And then I'll like, make yeah. that time to spend with my family. And then I'm back again. Like where you're seeing me right now, I made this office at home. I never leave. <laughs> like right. I'm just here, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All day, every day. You take so you take time off. I take Saturdays and Sundays. So off. for me, Friday, Friday is my time off. I need I need that reset button. Yeah. Otherwise, I've been notorious yeah, yeah. to burnout. Okay. I've I've hit that burnout wall many times and I've had to learn to avoid it. Um throughout my day. Mm. Uh, I literally have this on my calendar. So my entire team knows not to reach to, uh, to me at that time. 5.30 p.m. to 7.30, I'm training. So I got my workout. Just nobody talks to me during that time. Like, I just need that for me. Oh, I need to add that to the to the bill. I, I need to work out. Book it as a meeting on your calendar. And then everybody, nobody's going to reach out to you at that time. They know you're not to be concerned. <laughs> you know? Trust. Probably the best thing I've ever done. Because I've just booked that for myself. Serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... I tend to eat here at my working station, right? And I, the only, and just like you, I would fix my own coffee in the morning. So I'd wake up and this is just because since COVID hit, other than that, I'm, I'm usually in the office, but I'm usually up. But since, since, you know, COVID and we've been staying home, I'm usually up by eight, eight thirty. come down, make my own coffee, chill, catch up on the news, you know, take a few minutes and then, as b before nine o'clock hits, I'm already in my station kind of thing. And I'm just like, all right, mm -hmm. I have, it's so funny. I got this 
weekly action plan document that I fill out every day of, okay, these are the tasks I need to get done. Cause like sometimes you forget, right. And things fall between yeah, the cracks yeah. and, you know, between mm-hmm. locking in new businesses, business development, finance, dealing with legal operations, management, doing my own work and tasks and then catching up on emails. Like if I didn't book out that 5 PM, I'd easily fly through it with work as well into the night. You know, right now here, it's 10 PM right now in Dubai and we're doing this session. So like I'm still here. <laughs> so after my workout, right, right, shower, right. get changed and then come back here again. And I'm, and then I'm going through till, till later in the night. So I, I get it, man. Like it just, it, it doesn't stop. You, you, that's when you're on autopilot. And then Fridays, unless it's urgent, I'm unavailable. I want to catch up with the family. I want to catch up on some shows and Netflix and, you know, just see what's right, going on. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So I totally get that. Being a father now, de- I mean, you're definitely different from your father, right? I mean, it's just generational things change, but I think because you take from both sides, right? Yeah, That's yeah. normal. But like, what has changed when you became a father? I have emotions that I never knew I had. The first time I had to leave for tour and leave my daughter and my wife, I cried. Like I... Never cry when I, I love my wife. Never cry when I left. You know, <laughs> like I was like, I'll be back. Like, it's all right. I love you. I'll be back. Yeah. I cried. Um, I was depressed on tour the first time. I mean, multiple times throughout tour since she's been born. She was born in 2017. I've been depressed on tour from being away from her. And when I hang up on a FaceTime call, mm. you know, I actually get actual depression. I'm a person who honestly like. I've had a crazy life. We've all had our own stories and, and mine are no walk in the park as far as the life that I've had. And nothing has ever depressed me, but missing my daughter has made me sad and depressed, you know? Um, wow. I've had uh, a heightened sense of the importance of time. You know, I really, really value my time a lot more now because Time used to be time is money. Money wasn't everything to me, so it was all good. But now time is also away from my family. Mm-hmm. And I just love being with them. I love being with them so much. Yeah. You know? So that's changed a lot. And my daughter has opened my eyes up to seeing the world as a child mm. and what the world is and what the world could become. She's opened me up to seeing the world through the eyes of a woman, Mm. you know, and the level of indoctrination that society puts gender through, you know, classic pink for girls, blue for boys, seeing how those things are just kind of driven in to you from a very, very young age and seeing how potentially dangerous a lot of that is. I'm, I'm seeing that through the eyes of my daughter. And I can definitely say that's something that my father was not aware of. You know, his first two children were boys and then his second two were girls. And then his last was a boy. And I pretty much raised my my sisters and brothers more so than my dad. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm nine years older than my next sibling. So homework, fighting in the house, studies, school, activities, that was all me. 
Right. You know, the funding came from the bank of Abdul, but I was a manager, you know, right. <laughs> so, yeah, he, 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 he wasn't like he was working when I was growing up. I was very much uh, let myself in the house kid until he remarried, you know, so I'm way more emotional. I'm way more visibly emotional than my father because mm-hmm. my dad is very sensitive and loves his children very, very much. But in a classic immigrant dad way or an African dad way. Right. He uh, he's not showing a lot of that emotion. Like I'm all I'm showing emotion all over the place. <laughs> you know, my yeah. daughter's like, get off me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Bless her, man. Yeah, doing man. off you. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of the usual. I'm, I'm driven by a fear of failure. You know, uh, I have no higher education. Mm-hmm. I don't come from a wealthy family. I have no backup plans. So if this doesn't work, there's nothing, you know, and I lived a life where my mother's side of the family is black American from the inner city of Washington, D.C. And sometimes directly, but the majority of the times indirectly, my mother told me, don't try too hard because I don't want you to ever have to have that feeling of disappointment when you fail, because most of us fail and it's hard Mm -hmm. to make it in this life. Because she had experienced yeah, it's a protection so much. mechanism. Yeah. And she thought that that was a term of endearment, but it wasn't to me. And my father's side always saw me, especially in the DMV community, as some type of a black sheep because I didn't go to college and I did music. So there was this massive stere- uh, rumor about me that I was just like this street thug drug dealer, literally. You know, like hands off of Amir, he's the half black one who sells mm-hmm. drugs and makes rap music. Mind you, I've never done drugs a day in my life. I don't have anything to do with drugs, right? Uh, Yeah, and if I didn't make it, quote unquote, make it, I have a good feeling that a large portion of the Sudanese community would have had nothing to do with me, you know? But it's my visibility that allows them to have Mm -hmm. an association with me, and I'm very aware of that. I don't hold it against anybody. It is what it is. Yeah. Um, But... In knowing that so many people told me I was going to fail or that I was slated to fail and knowing that if this doesn't work, that I will fail. It's all I need. (laughs) It's all all I need. You know, and my my daughter born is just literally another log on the fire, you know, of all right, this has to work. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit more relaxed now and and my wife has been working with me to get me there. She'd be like, you need to chill out on this fear of failure thing. You have grown exponentially every year. You've diversified your income. Uh, I'm soon to be a landlord and with investment properties. And I'll have income from from uh, my rental properties now, which is all I'll need for security for the rest of my life. And I'm just starting to chill but it's right there in that moment where I'm like, I, I get that fear. Right when you yeah. think you're allowed to chill, God's going to take it, it away from you. But to be honest, that that fear has been the nitrous in your engine too. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been it's been empowering and not uh, crippling. For well, a lot of yeah. people around me, it's been crippling. You know. Yeah. Yeah, man. Almost definitely. No, I totally get that, man. Dude, like, for real. Thank you so much for your time, man. Like, this has been such an enlightening and fun conversation. I really appreciate that. Oh, man, it's always good to talk with you, bro. Yo, for real, it's good catching up. (laughs) Likewise, likewise.
سلام